Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. It's not the private sector coming to save the NGO sector. It is a win-win and everyone needs to work together because there are so many benefits to doing that and everyone comes out stronger as a result. Welcome back to episode 20 of What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Huge thanks to our sponsors and friends over at Stock Donator who are making this episode possible. Today, I'm interviewing Philippa White. Philippa is the founder and CEO of the international exchange, TAI and a true believer in the power of business and leadership to solve some of the world's biggest problems. TAI is a personal and professional leadership development program that uses global social challenges to bring out the best in people. By connecting the social world and the commercial environment, they create a catalyst for change. The thing that I really love and is really interesting to me about Philippa's model is the intentionality with which she builds win-win relationships between corporate partners and NGOs. This isn't the first time we're talking about this topic, but looking at the work of Ty and hearing some of the stories Philippa provides, you're going to be able to see what this looks like on the ground and in action. We talk about the value nonprofits are bringing to the table in these engagements on a micro level and how nonprofits can communicate that value to potential corporate partners. And we also talk about how working in the NGO sector changes corporate leaders to think differently and learn new skills that are so common for us in the sector. I even think we might take for granted how good we are at managing uncertainty, for example. I'm so excited to give you an inside look at cross-sector collaboration in action. So let's go meet Philippa. All right. Welcome everyone for joining us today. I am so thrilled to be here with Philippa White and for you to get to know her and her work. So let's just start there. Actually, I, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you over these last few months. And I would love to just have you share a little bit about who you are, your background and what it is that you are doing right now. Oh, well, I am so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor. And I've also loved following you and your stories and what you're up to. I get your emails and I see you on social media and I'm equally as in awe with what you're doing. So thank you for having me. It's a huge honor. So yeah, my name is Philippa White. I am the founder and CEO of the International Exchange or otherwise known as TIE. And my background, I, I grew up in Canada, so my accent is Canadian, but I was not born there. I was born in South Africa, and I left there when I was about three. But grew up in Canada. I studied business in London, Ontario, at a business school there. Finished my degree in Bangkok. And then after that, I went and worked in advertising in London, England, 
fantastic experience working for some really big agencies with some extraordinary people who I'm still very much in contact with now. So I worked at Leo Burnett and then I worked at BBH. And it was on that journey of working in the private sector in Adland that I had this epiphany for what I now do. My whole family come from the helping people industries is how I like to call it. So doctors, environmental engineers, social workers. My uncle was Nelson Mandela's doctor when he came out of prison and started negotiations with the apartheid government. And so when we would go on holiday to, and I mean, I grew up in Winnipeg. So if anyone knows Canada who's listening, and I am pretty sure you have a good handful of people from Canada who are listening. So Winnipeg is right in the middle. So anyone who doesn't know, uh, it's right in the middle of Canada. So literally like in the middle of nowhere. And it was an extraordinary place to grow up. So what's actually really funny in Canada, actually, I think I think the US has license plates like this as well, but I don't know anywhere else in the world that does it. Wherever the province that you're from, it, there's a line that kind of sums up that province. So beautiful British Columbia, Alberta is wild rose country, and Manitoba, which is the province where I grew up, it's friendly Manitoba. And it really is, I grew up, it's just a wonderful place to bring up children. So my dad was met my mom in England. He was, uh, he's passed away, but he was a doctor. They moved to Canada and it was just like this really safe, wonderful, easy place to grow up. And when I would go to South Africa and talk to my family there, I mean, there were real challenges that people there were facing, like poverty, racial segregation, apartheid. Like, obviously, when I would go there, apartheid wasn't happening anymore. But social apartheid, as you know, and many of your listeners know, is still very, very, very real and discrimination. And so the conversations that we would have growing up from just the challenges that people face in South Africa from that point of view, but also just from the humanity point of view of my dad working in the hospital system and giving his everything to fight against the system of these heroic doctors who want to be on call six days a week because look how much money I'm making and and look how much I'm working and my dad's like you are a detriment to the system because he was the president of the patient safety committee and the quality of care board and it was all about quality of care quality of care and stop with this heroic mentality that can't be like that and challenging the system challenging the system and all about humanity and there was just a lot of passion. One, growing up, my dad was an incredibly passionate person. Neil, my uncle, was you know, I just felt so inspired. And so when I worked in the private sector, I have to say, I felt this, like, there was something missing. It just felt like I loved what I did. I loved the people I was surrounded by. I loved the energy. I knew that my skills fit with what I did. But again, there was something missing. It was sort of like, I want to feel like what I know has some grander purpose in the whole scheme of things. And so I guess what I'm doing now has been born out of that. And it was kind of that feeling that surely working in the commercial world, there had to be an and, and there had to be, I had to know that what I know had some grander purpose, but I also knew that the private sector truly had the power to be a driver of change from that feeling of wanting to feel some kind of purpose. And I'm aware that your listeners, many people are actually working in the area that you're working in because 
you were one of those people that was like, I'm going to follow my purpose. <laughs> so you're one of the lucky ones. I'm aware that the grass is always greener. So obviously the people who go into the commercial world, probably making more money, not necessarily, but there's a more money available. It's a different dynamic, but definitely the people in the private sector really have that feeling of, I just want to know that I can make a tangible difference with the skills that I have. But then again, looking at the private sector, it has the power to make a huge difference. And as we all know, working in the development world, there are huge limitations. And the potential that you guys have to make an even you know, better difference usually comes down to funds. And obviously, that's what Mallory does. But that also means that you can't necessarily hire as many people as you want. It means that you can't hire the types of people that you want. There isn't as much money to go around. And as a result, there's huge limitations on the difference that can be made. Whereas the private sector has access to some of the most extraordinary people, can pay for them, has more funds available, can make decisions much quicker because they have access to more money. They have many times a bigger following. And so the power to be able to make change is very much there. And we also know that people within the private sector, like me and like many of the people that get involved with my program, want to work in a place that they feel proud to work in. They want to work in a place that they feel they're able to realize their purpose that is actually not out there ruining the environment, that embraces diversity. So when I set up Thai in 2000, and I started developing it in 2004, but in 2006, it became a company. So yeah, 2004, 5, 6, I was already aware. We were aware of these dynamics then. There was talk of sustainability. It was more corporate social responsibility at the time. But again, it was that feeling of we know that we can make a difference. But then we also knew at the time, but obviously it's just getting more apparent, is customers, if there's price parity, if there's an opportunity to buy something for one price and for the same price I can buy it and it's not ruining the environment or it's making the world a better place or it's coming from a company that has values and purpose and reason for being more so than just making a whole lot of money, then of course customers are going to be buying that. And so we know that the direction that the private sector needs to go in is one of shared value, of purpose, of being environmentally conscious embracing diversity. So we know that that's the direction that the private sector is going in. But then my question was, okay, so how do we get there? How do we get there? Because we need leaders within these companies that are capable of meaningful change, that are able to challenge the status quo. Like all these business schools, I'm sorry, but all these business schools that we go to, they're just churning out more cogs in the wheel. They're not getting us to think differently and they're not getting us to challenge the system. The thing is we need to be challenging the system. And actually these companies want people who can think differently, but it doesn't come from traditional textbook courses and learning. It doesn't. And we know that. It comes from pushing ourselves out of our silos. It comes from embracing expanding our personal circles and working with people who are so totally different to ourselves and learning how to get people who are different to us to trust us and for us to hire them. It gets us understanding the dynamics in other parts of the world and seeing how a decision here can impact someone in a completely different place around the world. And if we're only, if we're siloed and the more senior we get, the more siloed we get and the more stuck we get. And so I was aware of all of these dynamics and I knew that, okay, if we need the private sector to change, it can only change by having the leaders change it. But the only way that those leaders can change it is by shaking things up. And so, you know, I say the quality of our output is influenced by the inspiration we seek. And there's only so much inspiration you get from going to Pret-a-Manger every day at lunchtime or staying in your living room all day. And so we need to shake things up. We need to step out of our comfort zones, out of our 
silos, see the world in a different way, develop the confidence and the knowledge and the insights to then challenge things. And so that's what I do. And so basically, Thai is a personal and professional development growth program that uses global social challenges to bring out the best in people. So we use this connection of the social world with the commercial world to create that catalyst for change. And so by being embedded in unfamiliar environments, out of your silo, out of your comfort zone, without that normal structure, without those normal support networks, the normal human and financial resources that you have accessible to you, we create that transformational change and create huge impact at the same time. And so we've been doing that since 2007. We set up our first ever project, and that was with Leo Burnett in London and with an organization that works with HIV and AIDS in Brazil. And we physically sent this professional called Chris Jackson to Brazil, and he was embedded in the local culture for 30 days, and he had to crack a challenge using exactly what he knew to help this organization do what they needed to do. So that was our first ever project. And since then, we now work in 21 countries around the world. Until last year, we only worked with corporates and we only sent people. So we would send people to Malawi or we would send people to Myanmar, Senegal, Brazil, Guatemala, and they would use what they know in the area of finance or the area of communications, strategy, business development, and they would work with organizations like many of the people who are listening here who obviously struggle from a human resource point of view or a resource point of view. And we would have these super high level professionals come in and work together. So this is by no means I'm coming in. I know more than you at all. So we talk a lot about don't do to an organization, work with them, active listening, work with them. You need to be on the same level completely and come up with a solution. And the impact has been incredible. We've made huge, amazing things happen. But then when COVID hit, as you can imagine, borders shut down and the corporates were unable to get involved with what we did because they were just trying to stay afloat. So we saw our business model just completely crumbling. And we've been doing this since 2006. And we had so many organizations that we worked with. And we just started to get this flood of emails from Nepal, from Laos, from Myanmar, from India saying, Philippa, Thai, we need help to pivot. Um, we don't know how to respond to what's going on. How do you educate kids in the slums in India in a COVID situation? Our funding has gone out the door, you know, whatever the challenges are that, again, so many people here can probably relate to. So we need help. Are you still able to do that? And we're like, holy shit. But then we were also so aware of the real desire that professionals in this world have to be able to make a tangible difference with what they know. They're feeling stuck. They've made it to a level of their professional career. They're looking at the state of the world and they're thinking, oh my God, I really, I need, there's more to this. I don't want to quit my job, but I need to feel inspired. I need to grow in new ways. I need to expand my horizons. I need to see things in a new way. I just need to feel excited again. I'm just feeling in that slump. So we knew that those dynamics were happening. We knew that there was a real need to continue to bring these worlds together. So we created our virtual programs, which have just really taken off, which is super, super exciting. So we work with individuals through our Thai Accelerator program. And I've got, you know, I'm sure at some point I'll tell you about that. And we work with corporates. And we've actually just finished a fantastic, really emotional project with Leo Burnett as well in London. And so that's what we do. And I hope mm -hmm. that makes sense. 
It does. And I think something I really want to highlight for folks, and one of the reasons why I was interested in having this conversation is that I think there are so many sort of assumptions that we make about what nonprofits have and their value and what companies have and their value. And the sense I really got from our first conversation is that this is really about recognizing mutual benefit and like finding win-win opportunities and that the, of course, power dynamics are real things and they are at play in interactions like this, particularly with companies interacting with communities in the global South. And so not to negate any of that, but to help the organizations recognize their tremendous value in incorporating these thought leaders, these professionals, the way that is ultimately going to support the company's culture and development and creativity and innovation. And that there's an opportunity. It's not a favor, right? For these professionals to be coming in and working alongside of them and partnering. It's really about coming together and saying, look, this is a problem we both want to see solved. And we have different skill sets here, different lived experiences here. And what's possible when we come together and share that knowledge and share that opportunity. And for me, I really value that sort of inclusion of what the companies are gaining, because I feel like sometimes the way that CSR programs or corporate, you know, programs are structured is like they know on the HR side, the company knows on the HR side that those programs are good for their bottom line, that they're good for retention, that they're good for engagement, that they're good for culture, that they're good for all these things. They know that there's a real bottom line benefit. But the way they talk to their nonprofit partners is that they're doing them a favor. And I see a lot of pressure put on nonprofits from companies about setting up volunteer days and doing all of these different things and really, frankly, exploiting the nonprofit, the nonprofit as a whole, the community that the nonprofit is serving, the recipients of the services. And there's no transparent acknowledgement about the way in which that interaction is even serving the company. They're like two separate conversations. Totally. Um, <laughs> I, totally went, yeah. I went there. <laughs> no, no but, it, but this is the thing. There's two very big things in this. One is volunteer tourism. So that's, it's not even the same. That's a different thing, but it's the same idea. So volunteer tourism is real. And it happens. And I've tried as hard as I possibly can to be as distant from that as possible. And it has to be a win-win. And so from the point of view of corporates, I think we all know, particularly in the ad world. So if there's a pro bono client, why do you think the advertising agency is probably doing it? In a normal agency pro bono NGO arrangement, it would be awards. So it would be, we are going to be able to get a Can Lion or a DNAD award. If you get a Can Lion, that increases your share value, just so people understand that. So if you suddenly get a number of Can Lions, so there's been amazing stuff that's been created. Amnesty International won like a gold. But the question often would be, was that really what the organization needed? Was it? 
really what the organization needed. So was there, do people even understand about the dynamic of working in the international development world? Are they taught to listen actively? Do they empathize? Do they have those sort of really on the same level? Do they talk to the beneficiaries? So I would say probably not, just because that's not the system. And what has been unbelievable, so just even with this recent project, which we just finished with Leo Burnett. So it's a six-week program. There was this group of six people from this agency in London that came together. They had never probably worked together before. They knew of each other. A couple of them were like creative. So they were creative teams. So there were two people that always worked together, but there were two creative teams. There's a design director, a strategist, came together as a team that never worked together before. And they had six weeks to be able to understand this organization in India, in Mumbai, understand how they currently position themselves, how they want to position themselves, how they should position themselves based on what they do, how they separate themselves from the, actually, it's interesting, the organization's called Save the Children India, but they're not Save the Children International. They're Save the Children India. And the thing is, they have really struggled since 1990, well, since 1996, when they started up, to be able to differentiate themselves from Save the Children International. They've lost tons of funding. They haven't been able to position themselves. How are they different from other children's organizations? So it's a huge challenge that they've been facing forever. This group of people came together, and in six weeks, they truly understood what separated them from other organizations. They're all about early, early intervention. They work with children who are disabled. There's so many things that makes them so different to the other big players out there. So they, one, they got that, they put together the most extraordinary brand key and they put together this unbelievable video, like film, like a one minute film that they can use to then show to potential funders, et cetera. So they had over the course with the Thai program, there's international development training. We talk a lot about, again, not doing to an organization, working with them, so asking questions and listening to the answers, how to unpick insights, ensure that the organization is involved all the way through, talk to the beneficiaries if they can. If at the end, one stakeholder in the whole sort of equation isn't happy, then you have not done what you needed to do. So the way that you talk is stigma, discrimination. Think about how messages are portrayed and how you're talking about potential people who are on the other end of it. At the end of this presentation, so we had the CEO of Leo Burnett London, we had the managing director, we had the head of planning, we had the CEO of the organization in India, we had another two individuals from India and this group of six people. This group of six people presented, the CEO of the organization cried, I cried. The executive committee at Leo Burnett were so in awe. And the person at the organization in India said, I don't know how you guys in six weeks have managed to do this, but you listened, you asked us, you worked with us the whole time and you managed to pull together something that's ready to go. And the, the team said, we worked in such a different way. It, I learned to listen. I properly, I really was forced to empathize and understand the reality on the ground in where it is that these people work. And it was a huge opportunity for that win-win. The team got so much out of it. And it is, to your point, it is positioned as a leadership program. It's a leadership program for corporates. It's a growth opportunity for the corporates. It's leadership development. And it's very clear. Talent is involved. They want their leaders to be able to work in a more volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. And they need their leaders to be able to be flexible and be able to work better. And they get that working in an environment that is one that is an NGO in India. But it is definitely very clear right from the outset it's a win-win for everyone. And it really is. It always has been. And I'm super proud to say that because it, it is not about exploitation at all. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. So can I push you and me maybe for a second here to think about something? So I am thinking a lot about the value we place in society on money and about that sort of being the primary value system, perhaps in certain Western cultures in particular, and the way that that communication about money and the way we feel about money impacts the way we talk about the for-profit sector and the nonprofit sector. And what's interesting to me about your model is that even though I think you say maybe similar things to other organizations, your activity, the way you've built this is really around win-win. But at when you were first sharing about sort of nonprofits and nonprofits don't have the same money or the same access to people or the same resources, this is language we hear over and over and over again. And I'm starting to feel sensitive to like the impact that language has on the nonprofit sector because of how people feel about hearing things like that, what that means in terms of the limiting beliefs it creates around a ceiling of funds. But also actually the thing I want to explore with you that I don't have the answer to that I am seriously like processing is, okay, so what if the nonprofit sector does have less money? What if actually the issue is not saying that the issue is that we believe certain things because of that, right? Because, okay, the nonprofit sector has less liquid cash available to just spend on hiring a consultant because they need to go through board approval or whatever, or maybe they have less money in the bank, all the reasons. Nothing about what you said wasn't true. The thing I want to uncover a little bit is why does it matter? Because what you're saying and what you're demonstrating through your model is that they actually shouldn't need the money to hire those experts because they have something actually uniquely a value that they can trade in exchange for that expertise. So me, maybe as a business owner, maybe I should need money to be able to go out and hire that expert to help me strategize about my business. But the nonprofit next door to me, why do we assume they should have to have the money? Because your model really demonstrates that they have something else incredibly valuable to share. So I hear everything that you're saying, and I would say I almost wish that Thai didn't exist. It shouldn't exist in the sense that because it's not what we are is we are an accelerator. So we are an accelerator of change for something very specific. So we just finished another project with another really small organization that literally they don't have they're they're all volunteers. So there's literally no money. It's an organization that's working with the minister of Malawi and Nobel Peace Laureate. So it's all really high level individuals preparing for a UN meeting, the high energy meeting at the UN in September. Everyone are volunteers and the individuals who came involved with Thai, they volunteered their time to be able to help make all of this possible. 
but everyone came back to us saying we've been accelerated. This has forced us to think in ways that we haven't really been able to think about. Huge win-win. But at the end of six weeks, we're gone. And the thing is, ties not in the sense that we are that continuity to then create another project to be able to do something else again in the future. But they are left with a huge part of the process is capacity building, how to hand it over, make sure that they're able to work with whatever has been created. So it's left so that they can run with it. But they also don't have communication skills. They don't, which is a huge issue for many of the organizations that we work with. They don't have the communication skills. They're experts in the area that they might work in, be it HIV or environment or whatever. But communication is usually one that's really fallen that's fallen by the wayside. And that's actually something that helps catapult an organization to where they need to get to. So they don't have the communication skills. There's PR stuff that needs to happen. There's social media stuff that needs to happen. There's continuing these conversations with really famous people who have shown interest to get involved. But I worry that I don't know how much that's actually going to be able to continue until Ty gets involved again. This is not just a talk. This is proper impact. We make real change in a small amount of time. It's an accelerator. We accelerate change and real impact. But the problem is that the organizations, and it is a win-win for that moment in time. But when we then step away, the reality is that there's just not enough money, unfortunately. And this is why I think what you're doing is absolutely genius, because I think that there's a lot of people in these organizations and how you beautifully articulate it, don't understand the power of what they have at their fingertips, what the offer is to corporates that there could be that exchange. There could be many projects like Thai set up in other places. There's, you know, and so there is that win-win. Yeah, it's just, unfortunately, it's, we can only do it in small bits and it requires a certain element of kind of organization and understanding as well. I think the other thing is, is developing these projects. We also need to understand what can be done in six weeks. What can the private sector do to help? And what does that brief look like? They're like 12 page briefs that kind of go into the background of the organization. What is the objective? What does it look like? What's going to happen? And writing these briefs as well, because many of the organizations, I think we all feel it. And it's not necessarily just NGO world. I feel it. I'm I'm a for-profit company. But the thing is, when you get so immersed in the day-to-day and you're so bogged down with everything that you're doing, it's sometimes hard to be able to see things in an objective way and be able to understand, okay, how do we bring to life what we do? What is the raison d'etre to our mission? What is the objective? How do we say that in two sentences that's really clear as to what an individual is going to work on? And unfortunately, like it's hard to do that. And coming at it from the outside, it's almost like consultants. We're able to pull that together. But it, I agree. Unfortunately, because of the challenges that the, I think communications plays a big part of it. And I think, again, more people just need to know about your approach and your pro. It's an offer, not an ask, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. I wasn't even really thinking about that when I posed that question, but you're right. Of course, like my big thing is organizations recognizing the value that they're offering and exchanging that value for whatever level of support they need, whether that level of support is financial support, whether that level of support is expertise support and not feel like they're in the position of always needing favors from these people who have the things, have the expertise, have the resources, right? That they're coming to the table with something really valuable, which is, I think what you model and why I love this sort of in the framing. Yeah. Like in the past, it's, we make it very, very clear. So in a few of our experiences, it's really interesting how some people come and I've heard this from the individual saying, I thought I totally knew the answers. Like I came to the project thinking, 
I have all these contacts. I'm the CEO of my own company. I have experience with environment. I don't even think I need the rest of this team, to be honest. Like, I think I can just like, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're being a little bit facetious, but at the same time, there was definitely that inner feeling of, I have all the answers. And there's many projects that we've done over the course of the years where people have like put together a deck before they've even arrived being like, they arrive and they show the organization and they're like, Ta-da! have a look at this amazing ideas. And the organization's like, yeah, that's totally wrong. And what we do very, very quickly with our international development training and also the coaching is we just bring things down onto the same level and say, listen, you, you have to be humble. You need to listen. You cannot be arrogant. You have to take a few steps back and it's going to take a little while until you truly understand what's going on. And then together, you're going to figure out where to go from here. But you can only do it together. There's no way that you can know about it first. And I think that's the key is that it really is a group sort of effort and coming together. And there, and I make it very clear, it's not the North coming to save the South. It's not the private sector coming to save the NGO sector. It is a win-win and everyone needs to work together because there are so many benefits to doing that. And everyone comes out stronger as a result. Yeah. And I hope, I haven't asked you about this before, but I talk about in episode zero of the podcast, how I, throughout my career, I've gotten a lot of comments that sort of made it sound like I was playing small inside the nonprofit sector or could really do so much more um, if only I would go and work for Google. And there's a lot of stigma about the capabilities and power of the people who work for NGOs and in the nonprofit sector. And just hearing you talk about that these corporate leaders are coming and being exposed to a level of uncertainty they've never been exposed to before, rapidly changing data. My expectation is that they also have their eyes open to sort of the fierceness and the tenacity and the brilliance of these NGO leaders, and especially with the training around. And I think that is also something that I think is so important in terms of rewriting the stigmas around these silos of people When people even say things to me about nonprofits being inefficient in a way that indicates to me that what they're saying is that the leadership is inefficient or the staff is inefficient. I'm like, no, no, the structure of nonprofit is inherently designed in a very sort of counterintuitive way to efficiency, right? The fact that but the leaders, what they're doing with no money, you have no, and totally. And I think that's also just, it's really interesting because I am one of those people that says it's inefficient and I don't, I'm not at all talking about the leaders. I'm talking about the fact that it's, you get the money coming in. And then the only way that you can get that money coming in is if you spend that money to then get that money coming in. And that's like in the private sector, you have to be efficient and you cannot spend all the money because then you have, so I actually really like social enterprise and many of the NGOs that we work with within them, they have social enterprises to be able to generate income. And that's what I love because that's where we get really excited. But anyway, I love that. I also really love social enterprise. I mean, I also love the fact, you know, when I graduated from college and found myself in the nonprofit sector, it really did feel like nonprofit was the place. I mean, I'm too scared of blood to be a doctor, but you know, the nonprofit felt like the place where I could really make 
change. And now I think there are actually all these different avenues as we watch the rise of B Corps and different social enterprises. I think there's so many different models. And I think it's critical that non, that people who are there thinking about starting a nonprofit, that they're really modeling out what they want to do and how they want to be generating income and how they want to be spending money to design their program and to design their organization and their company. And maybe it's not a nonprofit. And in fact, a lot of the times, maybe it shouldn't be. When I think about that word, inefficiency. And I've never even thought about this before, but it's so interesting when people want to join power partners. So many people tell me, okay, I'm working on it, but I have to go get board approval. Or sometimes people will say that they have to submit. Will I help them write a five page report on the projected ROI? My program is $99 a month at this point. And I think about the fact that how inefficient that is, that you're going to have your development director spend five hours, 10 hours convincing you to spend money that's going to fundamentally change the way you fundraise. That's what's inefficient to me is like the approval process of money movement, like all of that stuff. And these leaders, these amazing, amazing leaders and visionaries and strategic thinkers and innovators are getting burnt out by all of this red tape. So we just finished this project working with basically there's 2.8 billion people around the world who still don't have access to clean cooking. So what that means is there's 2.8 billion people who do not have access to gas, electric, solar, obviously out the window. They can only burn firewood. So at this energy meeting that's happening in September, it's trying to get the poorest people in the world on the radar of policy makers and to be able to fund really efficient, fuel efficient stoves out to these populations. On the team, there is a woman, she's the CEO of her own financial institution that's floating on the New York and London stock exchanges. Her business is full of analysts who are Ivy League graduates who have been analyzing sustainable energy forever, and they are an incredibly successful company. She did not know, and her analysts did not know about this issue. And the people who are running this organization are technologists, their international development leaders, highly passionate, educated, knowledgeable individuals who are making a fraction of what this woman and the people who at her company are making. But they had information that nobody on this team, and they come from sustainability backgrounds, they come from no one on this team had this information. No one. And they, these individuals, these private sector professionals are sitting in these meetings covered in goosebumps and just completely blown away by the dedication, by the understanding, by the information of like real global issues that are facing people around the world that few people even know about. The problem that's lacking is funds, actually, because if they could hire a communications person to be able to get this word out, that would be out there and to be able to fight against these huge lobby groups who do have a whole lot of money. And that's the problem. But yes, as far as Every one of these projects, people are humbled and inspired by these individuals that they work with at so many of these organizations. And I couldn't agree more, but I do believe that the system is not as efficient as it could be. 
And I do think social enterprise as well is an interesting model even to have within an organization to be able to generate income. It can be driven back into that organization, but to find other funding models to be able to have money come in, I am a big believer in that. Yeah, me too. And I'm excited that that came up. And I don't think, I don't want folks to get the impression that I think the whole thing is broken, right? But I do think that there are some fundamental mindsets, standard operating procedures, quote unquote, best practices that are keeping us stuck inside a model that wasn't built necessarily for today. And so I think it's really critical that we're looking at those things and we're identifying what's working, what's not working, what's the roadblock there, where are we getting siloed, where are we getting stuck, and where are the trim tabs? I really like the idea of where are the small levers that can be pushed and pulled that make massive change. And I I think I feel that way about Ty. And so when I met you and I heard about your work, I was just excited about this idea that both does this very tangible, very real, very critical work, but also is changing mindsets and beliefs and power dynamics and structures that I think will have a ripple effect on the sector that you and I obviously I both so. want to see. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. so. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Couldn't agree more. So tell folks where they can find you, where they can learn more about Ty. Let's make sure they have all that information all included below the episode as well. Oh, that's really great. If you're listening and most likely are a social enterprise of some sort, social initiative or an NGO, and you are in the global south, just because you might have a head office in the global north, but offices in the global south, I would love to hear from you. So please email me at philippa at theinternationalexchange.co.uk. If you are corporate, commercial world uh, professional and keen to get involved, you can find me at apply.tieaccelerator.com and you can join our info session or you can check out our site, tieaccelerator.com or my just main website, which is theinternationalexchange.co.uk. So uh, you can find me in sort of all of those. So I know that you work with so many different organizations. And so in light of that, I'm going to switch up our final question a little bit to just invite you to share a little bit about an issue area that you really feel passionate about and want to encourage people to go um, to check, to learn more about, check out some of the organizations making a big impact and give if they can. Okay. So thank you for asking that question. I really, I've mentioned this organization actually on this podcast already, And I feel like there's a very real way that you can get involved with this. And I think it's an issue that's close to all of our hearts, which is the environment. I think we all are aware of a lot of what's going on around the world is as a result of the horrendous stuff that is going on with deforestation and climate change as a result. And what is really exciting about this organization that we've just supported, which is CCC. Now, they do actually just have a bank account for the first time and they are receiving donations. Very few people around the world are familiar with the fact that 2.8 billion people are still using firewood to cook, which means cutting down trees and a lot of smoke going into the environment and also causing deaths. Uh, Lower tract respiratory infections are one of the leading causes of deaths in these parts of the world because of smoke inhalation. And actually, the more noise we make around this issue, the more people will be aware of it. And we just need to be able to provide very real, tangible solutions, which are possible through this clean cooking clay stoves, which are super cheap. It's just, we need insane distribution to get out to these 2.8 billion people around the world. So 
that's what I would like people to do. Thank you for sharing about that. I will make sure that all that information is below as well and shared on social media. So folks have an easy way to follow along and learn more about it and give if they can. So thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today and having this conversation and letting us go to some of the places that maybe most people aren't comfortable talking about that I think are really critical to move the needle on these issues. So thank you. Thank you, Mallory. It is such a pleasure. I am so excited to have you in my world. It's an (laughs) honor. I've absolutely adored chatting with you. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you everyone for listening and just get in touch. I am so curious about what you think about Ty's model. The mindset behind their approach is really unique and nuanced in my opinion. Even though it's positioned as a leadership development program for corporate partners, their intentionality on win-win and mutual collaboration suggests to me that the value created here is truly beneficial for everyone. I also really appreciate Philippa's candid response around what happens when the project is over. This is a real and serious thing for us to be thinking about. I also love that not only do these corporate leaders get to build these skills, but they also develop a much greater sense of empathy around what it takes to solve problems that NGOs are working to solve, and how the third sector in so many ways is not set up for success, no matter how efficient the nonprofit leader is. I really think some of these mindset shifts can cause a ripple effect in how we think about the potential for world-changing collaborations. To get all of the detailed show notes from today, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast. You'll find more information there about Philippa's incredible work, as well as how to connect with her. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.